There it is. Is it going? Okay. Great. Okay. All right. What's, is Salim okay? She just... No worries. I have coffee in my study. Okay. Anything else? Okay, let me pray first. Father, thank you for this time of gathering us together, and uh, thank you for the privilege to look at such a wonderful topic, uh, your word. And uh, even though there's so much uh, that still could be said and so much, uh, in some ways, uh, detail, uh, all of that detail is... uh, has the mark of your hand and your finger and and how you've given us your word, you've spoken to us and you've preserved it. And I pray that in my heart and in our hearts together, we would come to appreciate uh, what you have given us in scripture and that it would become even more rich and even more meaningful uh, to us uh, as we understand how you've preserved it uh, through the ages, given it and preserved it through the ages. And so help us even to feel, a, in, a, in a sense, a kinship with those who have gone before us in a, in a long line of your people, um, not only from the New Testament on, but even stretching all the way back to um, Israel and the patriarchs and uh, even beyond. So encourage our, our hearts and lift them up uh, in, in some fresh ways to worship you. And uh, we do continue to pray for the Dwyers that you would give them uh, just make their steps clear in front of them and providing for them home, give them grace in the eyes of the land uh, Lord, their old one, uh, and getting their money back. And you would uh, keep uh, Marco and Amanda uh, just uh, trusting you and with all the details of moving up here. And uh, I think they're stopping to see her from Maryland. Uh, bless that time. Going together and bring their hearts up here refreshed. And please be with us uh, in this next hour or so, and um, we just will entrust the whole thing to you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Um, how far did we get last time? We went to canonization, right, I think? We started on... That's what I thought. Okay, were there any uh, any thoughts or questions or comments from general revelation, the idea of revelation, general revelation, or uh, special revelation? In, anything there that's or on inspiration? Who could say what the three main three of the main uh, points in terms of esp- uh, inspiration are? There were th- there were three key points. Does anybody remember? Well, one is that it originates from God. So God uses men in the process, but it originates with God. Uh, number two, would you? Okay, he breathed out, not in. That's an important distinction. He, not, he didn't breathe into them the word. He breathed out through them the word. That's the, the idea of that term that was used there in 2 Timothy 3.16. So what that means then is when we think of inspiration, the second point is that, well, let me ask you, who is inspiration referring to the writer or the document? Everybody agree with that? Right, okay. It refers to the document, not the writer. Yes, 
the writers was a part of the process, but when the doctrine of inspiration is particularly referring to the document. Second Timothy was inspired. Second Peter was inspired. Matthew was inspired. That's what's being referred to is that the end product. That's what was breathed out uh, by God. And number third, a third point is, yes, hon? L? The third point? What's the third point? Okay, that's one. Yeah, that's a, a, an important point. A third one, though, that that w- as far as an emphasis of inspiration is this: that God uses uh, man men shaped by providence, guided guided to write down His actual words. So, that point is to emphasize that God doesn't bypass the agency of man, not even the individuality of man, including their personality, their experiences, their their mind, their heart, their affections. Uh, all of those things, God uses that. That's why Scripture has the stamp of each of the human writers on it. Uh, but it is to say um, that it originates with God and that even in their personality and the experiences that through which that word flows, uh, they were so designed by God's providence and shaped by his will. As we looked at like Jeremiah, even from my mother's womb, and Paul said the same thing, that apart from the womb. Uh, from the earliest part of life, was set apart for the mission that God had called them to. So every detail of their life shaped them to be exactly who God wanted them to be to write his words. It's, I, I just remember hearing that for the first time. was just overwhelmed. I just thought that was one of the most wonderful things. I mean, just the amazing of the, the sovereignty of God in that was just, is just wonderful. Uh, but those are three main points with uh, inspiration. So there were other things there you can look at. Uh, the three things we're going to try to cover tonight is uh, ca- our canonization, transmission, and then translation. And uh, I think some of the things in translation will be practically helpful. So we're going to try to get through this other stuff. These are really big topics. Right? These are like huge topics. So we're we're not covering everything that could be said. I don't even know that we're covering all of the main points that could be said, um, but hopefully they're sufficient and they're adequate. I think that they are um, for, the, for, the, for the main of it. Uh, but, but these are huge, huge topics and, and just absolutely uh, wonderful topics. I think I speak for uh, a lot of people, a lot of guys anyway, uh, who have gone to seminary that... You know, in, of your classes, some of you uh, that I expected to be the most kind of not thrilling, and they ended up being some of the most thrilling. And and one of those was New Testament introduction. That that always kind of had the oh no, are you in that class this year? And I loved it. I loved it. And it was all the detail of manuscripts and transmission and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of just kind of detailed stuff, but. It was so wonderful, and you leave, and I hope this will be an effect on you as well uh, just by looking at this material. And if you decide to read more, you know, I'll have next week a list of resources for that that are accessible resources um, that you have a greater confidence in Scripture, a greater confidence. Uh, that really should be uh, the, the end result uh, because it is – amazing to see how God has preserved his word through providence using humans 
using even the weakness of humans and yet so perfectly preserving his word and so authenticating his preservation of his word, which we'll mention just even a couple of points on that. And this is also helpful, too, not only uh, in that sense of of, uh, our own understanding, but in terms of our ability to discuss these things intelligently with others and particularly to discuss the scriptures with others. And, And I'll explain uh, how some of those handouts are designed to be a help in that area, and even that's why I brought. Uh, didn't I just have two books in my hand? Yeah. Oh, two books. Yeah, uh, those books that I think will be helpful in that. Uh, honey, I have some things up here uh, to hand out to you. So anyway, so the first thing is uh, canonization. Canonization. Now, now, what are we talking about when we refer to canonization? Does anybody know off the top of their head? Did we touch on that at all last week? Well, let's look right there at the front. The meaning of canonization. The meaning of canonization. Uh, The general use is is like a a measuring stick. You can look at some of those references there. Uh, Galatians 6.6, it's it's the same term, canon, uh, that's used as a moral standard. Uh, In 2 Corinthians 10, 13 through 16, it's used as to mark a geographical area. So that's sort of the general usage of the term. In relation to Scripture, it has two primary meanings. One is the criteria by which a book was judged uh, to be inspired. Uh, so it was the criteria. We'll get to that at the end. And the second is, it, it came to refer to an authoritative list, this is number B, of those writings recognized as given to the church by divine inspiration. It establishes the limit, then, of inspired text. It says, of all of the writings that are out there, these books are from God, these other books are not. And, it, and so canon is that list and it's the criteria by which that decision uh, is made so very very important Uh, that is the area of canon i think i'd mentioned this before is one of those uh, areas where scripture is most attacked so if you go into a college campus that is going to be one of the areas so one of the lines of thought this was in those books if you read them uh typical lines of thought maybe you've been in these discussions i have uh Christians around the 4th century, they just had these councils. It was all about politics and power. Uh, They made the decision. It was the ones who had the power were able to say, this is the direction we're going and put these other out to the side. That there was no uniform understanding of what the scriptures were. Again, up until you get into the 4th century and those kind of arguments, which are um, fallacious. They're they're not uh, true. They're not accurate to to the facts. And and some of them aren't even logical. But... uh, that's what you hear, and you hear those kind of arguments, and uh, they sound like they have weight, but really they, they don't. And so uh, being aware of the canon is something that's uh, very important and very in, in how we got it. And again, this can be taken a lot further. We're barely just scratching on the surface, but hopefully it at least uh, gives some, some basic tools and uh, some encouragement to look at it um, even farther uh, than we are uh, today. Uh, so there's two basic views uh, regarding the establishment of the canon. The RCC there stands for the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, that view could be summarized in this way. It is an authoritative collection of writings. Okay, now th- this is one of those points, but where does that put the weight of authority? On, on the church, right? It's authoritative collection 
so scriptures exist because of the, ch- I should, the church. The church, who is the final authority on matters of interpretation and faith, it's related to their doctrine within Roman Catholic doctrine of apostolic succession. Right? Uh, Peter was the first pope. And then every pope after him is just following in the line of Peter. So his authority uh, to establish doctrine and right doctrine uh, is an authority that's inherited by the church. And it's passed down through the leaders, the pope particularly, and through the bishops of the church. And so therefore the church becomes the one who identifies and in a sense invests the authority entrusted to her to the scriptures. To the scriptures. Uh, that's essentially how it works. So with the, the rise of the bishop and the, with the rise of the authority of the bishop, ultimately leading into what would be considered the first pope, uh, with that came this idea that the authority rested in the church, and it was that authority of the church that marked out those divine uh, writings of God. Uh, that also had to do, and this developed later, uh, closer to the Middle Ages, with the, the church as the authority to interpret Scripture, right? Why did they not want the language or the Bible into the language of the common people? What was the argument? The argument was this. These are all people who, who knows what they're going to come up with kind of interpretation, but that has been entrusted to the church. The church is the interpreter of the word of God, and the church within their hierarchical structure is then with the pope and the bishops and all of that. So they are the ones who have been guarded and entrusted, and they are the ones who determine then the faith of the church. And then the, the people believe that. So the church becomes the guardian of that. That's why they didn't want the scriptures into the language of the common people. That was, that was their argument, essentially. That was their argument. Uh, so the inherent authority of the church is foundation of scripture's authority. The second view is uh, Protestant or evangelical or we, the biblical. It's a collection of authoritative writings. Now, where's the weight of authority in that statement? In the scriptures, right? In the writings themselves. Uh, so the authority is based on the fact of inspiration, Scripture has inherent authority because it is from God. So the script, the authority rests in Scripture. Uh, that second point there, Scripture was recognized by God's people. And here's the key term there. What is the key term there? What you say? Recognized. 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 Uh, recognized by God's people, not determined by God's people. God's people submitted to the reality of Scripture. Okay, that's it. So then that is God's people then bringing themselves up under the authority of the word that they recognize to be a word from God in the inspired text. And so the people of God then come under that word. That, and that's the key part. Come under the word. Now, of course, it's superficially the language of the Catholic Church is that it is the scriptures. and the, So, so they, they put that in, in name only that there is the, that divine authority. But... Because they attach that uh, from the from Christ to Peter on, in reality, then because of that train of that logic, then because then the church interprets the scriptures, their interpretations of scripture then come to have the ultimate final authority. It's like the tradition within the rabbinic tradition and the oral tradition that we see in the New Testament. You're, by your tradition, you have invalidated the word of God. 
uh, it has come to have, like, so what did the rabbis do? They didn't quote scripture as much as quote rabbis' comments on scripture. Well, in a sense, that's precisely what, what happened. The traditions and the counselors, because of that logic of the church having the authority, came by their own decisions to supersede the sufficiency and the authority of the, of the scriptures alone. That's why when people had the scriptures alone, what they do, they'd go, hey, there's all kind of things that I'm being told that I can't find in the scripture, right? That, and that's, uh, that was the issue because uh, that was the issue. So the authority lies in the scripture. That's uh, important. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, there was actually a YouTube video on that. No, I'm kidding. They didn't have YouTube. Uh, we're going to get there. Okay. So hold on to that. Yeah. Look at this quote that we have. Yeah, we, we will get there uh, actually pretty quickly here. Uh, look at that quote. This was a great quote by J.I. Packer. Uh, the church no more gave us the New Testament canon than Sir Isaac Newton gave us the force of gravity. God gave us gravity. By his work of creation, and similarly, 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 he gave us the New Testament canon by inspiring the individual books that make it up. So that's the, the biblical idea here. God gave us the canon. We recognized it. God gave us gravity. We didn't create it. We simply discovered it as we recognized that it was there. Great, great, way, to, great way to say it. Um, you can look at that other quote, too. Now, we recognize, uh, too, this is, was stated at the very beginning when we talked about inspiration, but I'll just remind us uh, here, too. While there are abundant reasons and criteria and arguments and evidence to affirm the canon of Scripture and its acceptance by the people of God, the other side of this in these discussions is, apart from regeneration, that will not be affirmed. Right? This is ultimately a work of the spirit uh, of God, too, in the heart of God's people. And that does play a role because one of the criteria by which both the Old Testament and the New Testament uh, were recognized is, one, that it was accepted by the people of God, and two, that it came with the power of God. And those are two, two things, just in those in themselves, that are related to the work of the spirit of God in the heart of God's people. So... Uh, while there's reason and there's uh, uh, plenty of evidence to argue back, uh, the fact of the matter is that it is, it is uh, we recognize these books when you open your Bible and you don't struggle with you know, wanting to go down and put something else on the same level. Why do you not struggle with that? Why do you so easily recognize those books? Well, because the Spirit of God testifies in your heart that this is the Word of God. You, just know, you don't even need to be taught that. Right? You might need to, to grow an understanding that we do, but you just know it. If you're a Christian, you get it, and you just you know it. Why? You hear God's voice in it, and you, you can distinguish other things that are uh, that maybe even be helpful, but they're not Scripture. So but just put that little footnote there. Um, the Old Testament canon. But here, let me just reiterate this one point. This is the one, if you just kind of summarize that with canon, is this. The canon is grounded in inspiration, 
not ecclesiastical affirmation or confirmation. That's the thing. The canon is grounded in inspiration. Let's simplify that. Not in the affirmation of the church, ultimately. It's grounded in inspiration. Now let's look at the Old Testament canon. The term canon that we just kind of throw around and make sense to us because we've used it for so long was actually not a term that they used in the Old Testament. Uh, If you would have gone back to um, 800 B.C. and, you know, showed up at the Jewish temple or wherever and said, hey, where do you, you know, where do you keep that canon, that book, those books? They would have no idea what you were talking about. They, that's, not, that's not terminology they used, but it was the idea was clearly uh, active uh, among God's people. And so we'll, we'll look at that. So look at point A. Inspired books were copied, kept, and recognized as authoritative. So there's just a few examples. Uh, the law of Moses. What were they to do? They were to have a copy of the law of Moses. They were to copy a law of Moses. They were to know that law. Now, there were other things around, but they were not the law of Moses. So that, that, that was something clearly distinct. It was kept distinct. It was foundational in terms of the life, the spiritual life, the spiritual identity, uh, the covenant relationship and covenant identity of God's people uh, with their God. So those were clearly uh, given by God to Moses, the prophet, written down and kept by God's people. That's the, that's the point. So essentially, at that little snapshot of time, that, that was their canon. The idea of canon uh, was there. That's the point. You can look at some of those references. Uh, just for time's sake, I, I'm not going to. If we, were, if we had a whole night just to focus on this, we would talk about more of it. Um, the, the second is the prophets. We see example there of the writing of the prophets recognized as being uh, words from God. Let me give one of the more common illustrations. We will look at this. Uh, Isaiah, uh, Daniel 9, 2. You can look at those other references too. This, you might already be aware of this one. In Daniel 9, 2. So Daniel 9. So Daniel 9, he's, he's praying to God. And he's praying to God. One, he's confessing the sins of his, his people, the Jews, in his own sin. And he's asking God then to bring deliverance. And he's asking God to bring deliverance based on God's own promise. Um, so you can read all of that in Daniel 9 is, is his prayer of confession. But the interesting thing here is in verse 2. And you uh, look in verse 2 and, and, and tell me what was it that prompted Jeremiah's prayer. Did what did I say? Okay, Darren Daniel. Thanks. What is it that prompted Daniel's prayer in verse two? Well, let me. No, no, no go ahead, please. Take a shot. We're all friends. <laughs> you sure? Okay. Well, here, let's, let's read it together. In the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, observed... 
right? I observed in the books the number of years which was revealed as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet for the completion of the desolations of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Okay, so Jeremiah had written, that was written down. He had written over 70 years, right, before these events. Jeremiah 25.11 says this, as he's prophesying in chapter 25 of this destruction that God is going to bring on his people. So at this time, the Babylonian captivity had not taken place, right? If you read Jeremiah, that doesn't take place till the end of Jeremiah. Uh, this had not taken place yet, uh, or, uh, or at least uh, it's, it's the fullness of it. it. It happened in waves. We'll talk about that next week. But so Jeremiah is prophesying, and, and this is what he says in verse 11. The whole of Jeremiah 25, this whole land will be a desolation and a horror. These nations will serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Now, the simple point here is, is only this, and you can look at all of those references, and there's more that could be added uh, there. Daniel, after 70 years in a foreign nation, uh, after three, enduring three rulers, Nebuchadnezzar, then Belshazzar, and then, right, the Median Persian uh, Empire, the last one that he experienced is there, uh, is in captivity. He's now reading the scriptures that he knew of, even though the nation is in exile. And he knows Jeremiah wrote that. That was a word of the Lord. The point is simply to say they recognized Jeremiah was a prophet of God. He wrote it down. That was the word of God and, and so forth. So the, the point that's being made there is that they recognized the canon. They, they, they did. They recognized that there were distinct words of God. Those words were preserved. They were recognized as authoritative, uh, both in their prophetic material and in their moral exhortations and in their teaching. Uh, so, again, look at those. You can look at those other ones. Um, I have a few other notes here. You, you, we could note also such passages as in First Chronicles 16, which quotes portions of the Psalms that we have in our canonical Psalms. There were other Psalm-like material that were not canonical, but the ones quoted in First Chronicles 16 are in the canonical Psalms. Or Jeremiah 26:28, which quotes from Micah 3:12. We just looked at Daniel 2. Um, so the point is, is that you see this even within uh, the, the Old Testament itself, these recognized scriptures and writings of God. Other writings are mentioned in scripture that are not canonical, but these are given uh, divine uh, authority, divine authority. Um, look at number B. Jesus and the apostles only referred to the canonical books of the Old Testament canon as authoritative. Refer to those books. Jesus acknowledged the threefold division of the Jewish canon, law, prophets, and psalms. You see that in Luke 24. The Jews also divided it as this way, law, prophets, and writings. Have you all ever heard of the Tanakh? Anybody ever heard of that term, the Tanakh? Well, the Tanakh, the, the T, N, and the K are Hebrew words, actually, that refer to the law, uh, the prophets, and the writings. So if you hear Tanakh, that's what it is. Those are just three Hebrew words. What do you think T is? Torah, right? And then Nephim, and then uh, the, the writings. So anyway, that's, that's, what, uh, that's one of the ways they divided it. The Old Testament Apocrypha 
were respected books, but distinguished from divine works that make the hands unclean. Now, for the Jews, later on, that was one of the phrases that, that marked off a divine book from an, a book that was not recognized as inspired. Though it may have been highly revered and respected, it was not seen as given divine status. It was hand, uh, books that make the hands unclean. In other words, it was holy. And then there were books that did not make the hands unclean. In other words, they were not holy in the sense of given by God. Uh, let's just briefly, briefly mention here the Apocrypha. That term was first used by Jerome, the church father Jerome. It refers to 14 books that were written after Malachi. So after Malachi. Um, now what happened is Jerome was translating the scriptures. Now, uh, he was tra- as he was translating the scriptures, he was translating from the Hebrew. And as he was doing that in the Old Testament, as he was doing that, he realized, so now at that point, what they had, what was largely commonly in use, was the Septuagint. Right? We mentioned the Septuagint before. We'll talk about that just a bit again. Uh, now, the Septuagint actually contained the Apocrypha. Uh, and so that's what was commonly accepted as to be in the old uh, part of the Old Testament. But then Jer- Jerome was translating from the Hebrew Scriptures and realized that the Jews did not recognize those 14 books as being divinely inspired, as having that divine status of authority. So he didn't include them. They ended up being included in Jerome's Latin Vulgate, in, in, interestingly, because of the influence of Augustine, uh, who thought, you know, those should be there. They were in the Septuagint. That was accepted. God affirmed the Septuagint because, uh, actually, uh, in the Gospels and such, you'll notice that sometimes quotes don't exactly match up. If you go back, because sometimes they're quoting freely. Sometimes they're quoting from the Septuagint, and sometimes they're quoting from what was called the Masoretic Text. And so they were all quoted uh, both by Jesus and uh, others. So he, Augustine, uh, encouraged, uh, encouraged uh, Jerome to keep them in there, and so they ended up being in the Latin Vulgate, and they were a part of, a part of it. But they were still... And, and the thing, the argument that Jerome made is that, that you can keep them in there and that others and that ilk, but... But you shouldn't establish any doctrine from them. Only establish doctrine from the others. Uh, but the Catholic Church eventually did want to keep them, and they, weren't, they were officially sanctioned in the Council of Trent at the, in the 1500s because of the Reformation, because there were things in there that supported Catholic doctrine, like prayer for the dead, penance, uh, works, and those kind of things. I have a few of those listed uh, for you. Um, and purgatory. So you can look at those. Uh, you can look at those examples. One of the things the Reformation emphasis on sola scriptura, and and here's what happened, and this was actually one of the pro- positive effects of humanism, 16th century humanism, uh, was there was a return back to the originals. You know that was a part of it. And so really, what happened, uh, and we, uh, because of that, in, interestingly, have you all heard of Erasmus? Have you all ever heard of that? Okay, so he put together the Greek New Testament. Uh, it wasn't perfect. They had limited information, and he actually used uh, parts of the Vulgate to translate back into the Greek, particularly with Revelation and such, and he had to make several editions. But uh, the point is, uh, that then became uh, very important in the Protestant Reformation. It, that Actually, that text that he had uh, from, from Erasmus. Uh, and it was going back to the original that really uh, was part of what God used in Luther's life uh, that he, uh, even, uh, there's a note in here, I think, or maybe it's not, but he, in Matthew 4.17, it, 
they had f- translated from the Vulgate, a common uh, translation was do penance. The kingdom of heaven is a do penance. And he realized that term was actually repentance. And so that was part of what he nailed up. I think it was like in the first few that he nailed up on the 95 thesis on the wall. So that was, that was, all, that was all happening uh, uh, there during the Protestant Reformation. But the point here is notice is that these books, these Apocrypha were respected uh, but they did not; they w- were not ascribed the same authority as canonical books by the vast majority of God's people. Now, as I mentioned before, uh, there are some really helpful things in those books. Believe it or not, some of the most helpful, as a matter of fact, uh, where we get the most of our information in intertestamental period is from Maccabees. There are four books of Maccabees that are in the Apocrypha. Each one has its own, and really there's kind of a descending scale of uh, reliability. You know, the first being the best, the fourth being the worst. Uh, but that's where we get a lot of our information about Antiochus Epiphanes, the, that intertestinal period, and what was going on. We actually get from those books. There is a lot of value uh, to them, but they were not inspired, and, and nor um, there was a distinction between the value of those and those books that were canonical. Uh, so I mentioned the Septuagint there. Uh, the Apocrypha fail three essential tests. Three essential tests. This is the thing to remember. Orthodoxy, and these are also going to play a role with criteria of recognizing inspiration. Orthodoxy, there's some examples. Prayer for the dead, work, salvation. Historical reliability, there's known historical mistakes and errors. And like I said, there's more in some of the older books than in, in the earlier ones. Uh, and spiritual integrity. There's one example where God helps Judith in a lie. So these books never gained universal acceptance by the people of God. And though accepted by some for questionable to invalid reasons, they were vehemently opposed also by many. They were opposed by many. Um, so they were always a point of contention, even though, or, uh, even though they were included in the Vulgate. Uh, okay, we're going to skip over some of this material. Let's just go to the close of the Old Testament canon. Just notes that I have. The close of the Old Testament canon. Now, liberal scholars have pointed to what's called the Council of... Now, I'm a hick, so I say Jamina. Uh, But it's Jabna is a way to pronounce that. Jabna in 90 AD. Now, some things to notice about here, just some quick notes on it, is it was not an authoritative body. So so the liberals will come and go, ah, they they look and really... Bad, bad scholarship. Look, and uh, here it was. The, the Jews, were, the, you know, they didn't have any idea really up until this point, but they all got together and said, hey, right, so this is 90 AD, so the temple is destroyed. We're out of our land. Soon there's going to be another rebellion in 135. It's going to get worse for them. And so we, we really need to kind of have some books here that we say are from God and to guide us along, you know, as the Jews. That's kind of the part of the line of thinking. Uh, but that's not correct. One, it was not an authoritative body, but a group of leaders in academic discussion. It was basically like a bunch of scholars who were in the room uh, bantering over just some fine points of detail. Uh, they weren't trying to decide the canon. That wasn't the point of it. Uh, number two, discussion was not about the definition nor the scope of the canon, but how to apply the law to the Jewish situation post-AD. That's why they were gathering uh, there together. Canon was closed after Malachi, approximately 400 years before the New Testament. Uh, let's look at this one, one quote briefly by Josephus. Now, Josephus, you know, was... Do you all know about Josephus? Okay, Josephus was a Jew. He was from uh, the first century. 
And Josephus was a Pharisee. And his famous thing is Josephus was uh, so alive during the, the, the siege, the Roman siege, which ultimately ended in uh, 7 AD with the destruction of the temple. It was, it was part of that Jewish war, which began in 66 AD. And so uh, he was basically a Pharisee. He ended up leaving the Jews and going over to the side of the Romans. He was a traitor, a turncoat, really. Uh, and so, but he also wrote some significant works from which we, so you can see bias in his writings, but it's from him that we get a lot of our information about, again, it's from Josephus that we have a lot of our information historically about the siege, what happened, the causes for it, uh, the atrocities that went on, uh, and all of those kind of things. So uh, he's not a believer, he's a Jew. But he does represent a lot of Jewish thinking uh, in his works. Here is uh, one, one statement by him in a book. That's, you can see at the bottom the, the title of the book. Uh, he says, For we have not an innumerable multitude of books among us, disagreeing from one and contradicting one another, as the Greeks have, but only 22 books, which contain the records of all the past times, which are justly believed to be divine. It is true, our history has been written since Artaxerxes very particularly, but has not been esteemed of the like authority with the former by our forefathers. Uh, because there has not been an exact succession of promise uh, since that time. And how firmly we have given credit to these books of our own nation is evident by what we do. For during so many ages as have already passed, as have already passed, I think it should be passed, no one has been so bold as either to add anything to them or to take anything from them or to make any change in them. But it has become natural to all Jews immediately and from their very birth to esteem these books to contain divine doctrines and to persist in, their, in them and if occasion be, willingly to die for them. Now you notice that he mentions 22 books. I look down at the footnote and you'll see why. The number of 22 is arrived at by combining uh, as one book, uh, books that are divided in our current Bibles. I need to reword that. Uh, so here's an example. The book of Moses is five. That equaled five. You have the prophetic books that were Joshua, Judges, Ruth, Samuel, Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations. Like, so uh, Samuel is first and second Samuel. Kings in our Bibles, first and second Kings. Those were originally one. They were divided up because of the length of them. So those were counted as one. Uh, Jeremiah Lamentations, that was one. Uh, they're divided up in our Bibles. Ezekiel, the minor prophets were considered one book, not 12. It was the group. They were collected together. Um, uh, let's see. Job, Daniel, Ezra, Nehemiah were one book. Chronicles, Esther, and that, that equaled 13, followed by the Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Psalms equaled another four with a total of 22. Later divisions consisted, you notice there, of 24 books by separating Ruth from Judges and Jeremiah from Lamentations. So in other words, it was the same books. How they divided them up was different. That's the point. They just grouped some together, and some later they separated some. Now, criteria that you'll see there for the Old Testament canon. Uh, for time's sake, we'll do this uh, quickly. Again, there's, there's a, lot, a lot that would be interesting to talk here. But One is, was it written by a prophet or recognized? New Testament, we'll look at this in a bit. It was, was it written by an apostle or an associate of the apostle? And that 
actually became a key point in why some books took a little longer to be recognized because they couldn't affirm was it apostolic. And you got to remember during this time, there were lots of books being written uh, that you hear about that, that they were trying to attach it to names of apostles or uh, to give it authority and such. So, so sometimes it did take a little while for some books to be accepted. But in the old, we're talking about the Old Testament here. It was it written by a prophet, a recognized prophet. Um, it wasn't until around 200 A.D. that the more rigid threefold division we know today came into being. For most of its history, the Old Testament was commonly known as the Law and the Prophets. For example, in the Talmud, the books Joshua through Kings is simply referred to as the early prophets. And then you had some of the later prophets. Uh, but one, the important thing there is, was it written by a prophet? Number two, is it authoritative? Did it assert authority and exercise that authority with God's people? Did they recognize that authority? Number three, is it authentic? Does it correspond and cohere to other revelation? One uh, great text with this is Isaiah 8.20. To the law and to the testimony, if they do not speak according to this word, then they have no light. Do you remember that verse? Uh, Or they have no dawn. Is it dynamic? Does it come with the power of God? Um, uh, and lastly there, and was it received? Was it generally accepted by God's people? Was it genuinely, gen- generally accepted by God's people? Well, it would mean a couple of things. One, there was uh, the word, but also that it came with the, yeah, with the power of God what it proclaimed. So for examples of that would be Jeremiah uh, talking about the, um, the dest- destruction that's coming, the 70 years, those kind of things. Did it, did it accomplish what uh, it said it was going to? Here's, I don't have this in your notes, but you could write down 1 Samuel 3, 19. 1 Samuel 3, 19. I have different numbers on mine, so maybe Jason would know that. So here's one, here's one example of that. 1 Samuel 3, 19 through 20. So uh, Eli, the priest, he's out, right? His sons, they were just terrible. So God takes them out, and then Eli's on his way. Well, he's going to do that. And then Eli's going to be out. And so God is raising up Samuel, right, a, a, a faithful prophet. And so one of the ways that God confirmed his prophets is there were near prophecies and there were far prophecies. So very often he would give them a near prophecy. It would be fulfilled and that would validate them then as God's prophet and then uh, be trusted for these things that were then further down the road. Here's one example of that. First Samuel 3, 9. 19 through 20. Thus Samuel grew in the Lord, and the Lord was with him, and let none of his words fail. That's part of that. Came with the power of God. Let none of his words fail. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of the Lord. So that's, that's one example. Um, it's something similar in chapter 9, verse 6. Yeah, so you can go there. We... Uh, The New Testament canon. As with the Old Testament, the the canon was completed the moment the last book was inspired. 
the canon was, secondly, uh, the canon was recognized by God's people, although some books took time to gain universal acceptance. Now, you'll note, with the handout from last week, it has uh, motivations for collection, and then it has some time periods. It has like from 70 to 170, and then on down. There's three different time periods there. Do you all see that? No, 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 that's, that's separate. Um, no, 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 here, here, if I may. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's it? No, 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 I should have, did I? I hadn't handed some out last week. No, uh-uh. Let's see, very, no, 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 I handed them out last week. I thought I did. Yeah, okay, here it is. Collection of New Testament writings. Right? Do you see that? Yeah. So now we're not, we don't have time to go through all of that. If we were doing just this alone, we would go through that. But I think so. I think I handed them out last Wednesday or, or Sunday, and then this past Sunday. Yeah. I, I can get you a copy. I can make another copy. Not a big deal. You got it? Okay. Trish started to get some dividers today. But it was so expensive to, to get this many and then all the devices. You know, they're not cheap. So, sixteen or eighteen. Yeah. So you'll see on that handout then that there were period of time that it took for all of the books to be recognized. They were, they were recognized. And it gives some explanation for that, some very brief bullet point explanations uh, for that. Um, so most were recognized almost immediately and preserved. Some took a little longer due to various reasons, such as being unknown to the church at large. Remember, they didn't have internet and phones. So because a part of the church, and remember also, there was sporadic persecution. There wasn't, it wasn't like there was empire-wide persecution throughout the whole time up until Constantine. That happened with Diocletian right before Constantine and, the, and some others. Uh, but there was sporadic persecution. It was an area. It's kind of like it is in China right now, actually. It's not all of China you're persecuted. It, it really depends on where you are. And I've spoken to, to people who are there and asked them about that. Um, it kind of depends on where you are. In some places, you could get killed. I had a professor uh, from the Master's College who saw his dad and his brother beat to death because they had a copy of the Bible, a page. So that happens. That was in China. But then you can call, go to some other province and, and they fairly worship fairly freely, openly. And then there's the state church and other issues there. But, uh, so it was kind of like that in the Roman Empire. It was, it was like that uh, as well. But the point is, is that they didn't have ready access. You know, they didn't, the communication and in some places they were persecuted. So sometimes it was just they didn't know about books uh, that were being, that were uh, written. And, and so there were things like that. There were questions of authorship, as I mentioned. You'll see that on your handout. Confusion regarding its teaching uh, and so forth. Uh as I mentioned, this is important to recognize for critics of the Bible or argue that some people of the early church got together and decided which books will be uh, in the Bible, um, which that goes directly against the evidence. Um, 
as I mentioned before, even in the early writings from the 2nd century and the 3rd century, moving into the 4th, certainly by the 4th century, at 325, all that changed. But in the 2nd and the 3rd centuries, um, even though many other books were quoted, particularly like in the, the early church fathers and their writings, there were a distinction between what they referred to as Scripture, and they, they argued and this was the important point, if you'll remember, like Origen, one of his things is he argued from Scripture. That was like, he had a lot of other things, there was philosophy, but he was arguing from Scripture. Scripture clearly had, and the books that we recognize as the canon were the ones they were arguing from as being the word of the Lord. And even using terms like Scripture and God said or the Lord saith and those kind of things. Um, so that's really important to remember. So even though they had, may have had a lot of other stuff mixed in there, there was a clear distinction uh, in their writings between what was seen as from God and what was seen as just uh, another book. I, I'd love that if we had time to just, you know, start pulling out some examples of that. It's really fun to see it. But um, but anyway, so there it is. Some books were known to the larger church. Authorship was not always immediately known to questions and questions regarding specific teachings. I'd really encourage you to look up. That's not a long list. It's just a page. I think it's front and back of a page. And you can kind of see, get a snapshot of how that was uh, developed. Uh, here are some earlier canons. I'm going to let you look through those again on your own, the Muratorian canon. Remember now, and here's another important point to remember. When the church was, when the church was, these canons began to, to form. So here's the Muratorian canon, about 170. It, 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 these things didn't just pop out of nowhere. What happened was, is one, they were already recognizing heretical teaching. Gnosticism, which was be just beginning some of that teaching that we see in First John and other places, it really became formed not until later in the second century. Uh, but false teaching was around. And so these canons were a response. It was to clarify for the people of God uh, to take away confusion because of these other false writings, uh, what was recognized by the church as the word of God, as the inspired text. They weren't, they weren't cherry-picking out of what they wanted to find the doctrines. That's, they weren't doing that. that the, the evidence isn't that. They were confirming when these were as a direct response. As a matter of fact, I, it's in, I think it might be in there. Like the Muratorian was in response to a heretic called Marcion. Then you had another later one. The, there were these groups called the Montanists. And then there's another canon that came after that. It was because Marcion, for example, he denied uh, the Old Testament. That was the mean bad God. And then he denied books in the New Testament that uh, spoke favorably of Old Testament books. And so then that's confusion, right? And so then there's this other canon, this one right here, the Muratorian canon. That was given in response to that, to say, no, 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 here. And so we don't have that whole, there's a, we meaning the church. Uh, there's only fragments, so we don't even know every book that was in there. But you can, you can look at those different lists to give you an idea of what some of those. Athanasius Canon was the one that, boom, 367. And again, these were already the books. You can look at the history. These were already the books that were floating down and were recognized. Um, he, he lists what we have in our Bible. Um, let's look at the criteria of the New Canon, okay, New Testament Canon. So it was, was the author an apostle? Does it claim inspiration? Is its message consistent with apostolic teaching? Did it come with the power of God? And was it generally accepted by the people of God? Very similar to the Old Testament. Where does it say Old Testament? Oh, I fixed it in mine. Is it still not fixed in yours? 
I'm so sorry. Yeah, that should be criteria of the New Testament. Sorry. Yeah. Ultimately, again, it was the witness of the Holy Spirit. If you wanted to put in there, just so for example, uh, a text would be 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. Uh, and I have verse 13, but I think it's verse 10. Uh, no, it is verse 13, it's right. Uh, he's writing them, he says, For this reason we constantly thank God that when you received the word of God you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word from men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also, and here's the power, performs its work in you who believe. In other words, you know this, you've heard it as the word of God, and you know the power of it in your own life. And, and remember, in Thessalonians, he's dealing with these false reports. Remember, secondly, you may have received a letter as from me. Even in the New Testament, we see this kind of stuff was going on. You remember Paul saying that in Second Thessalonians when he's talking to them about the day of the Lord? He says, you may have received a letter as if from me, and it's caused this confusion saying the day of the Lord has already come. And Paul's saying, no, it's not. You remember at the end, he says, you see that I'm writing my own hand in which large letters I'm writing in my own hand, he says, so that you know that it's me. You see, that was already going on in the early church, that the apostles were writing. You had false teachers who were coming in, some who were trying to borrow their authority. That's where some of that wrong teaching, uh, not only from the Judaizers, but, you know, often in First Corinthians and others that they're dealing with the resurrection. He was dealing with false teaching about the coming of the Lord and the rapture and the day of the Lord. So that stuff was going on. So we see that process going on that we talk about in the second and third century. We see it already going on in the New Testament. They're already dealing with some of that uh, there. Really fascinating uh, to see that. Close of the New Testament canon. Here's three reasons. Uh, one is the canon was closed in the 90s AD after the writing of Revelation the death of John, the last apostle. Important point, with the death of the last apostle came the close of the canon, right? What did Paul say in Ephesians 2.20? Built on the cornerstone of the uh, apostles and the prophets. So when there's no more apostles, uh, canon's closed, right? You, you, don't, you no longer have that criteria. We looked at that in 2 Peter 3.2. Uh, as well. Uh, here's three reasons. Uh, theological, oh man, I am so, this is constantly a work in progress. I'm finding as we go through here, I think I fixed everything, but uh, I didn't. Three reasons, theological reason. Uh, God confirms, God confirms uh, the cl- in Revelation, uh, the close of the canon, in Revelation 22, 18, the ending of his, of uh, his, of his revelation. Um, Let's, let's just look at these briefly because we still have more to cover here. Um, this is a similar warning and formula given in De- Deuteronomy 4.2, and you can look at that at the close of the law. Subsequent to this, every prophetic work was attested to by God and was a further application of all that God revealed in the law. So when he gave that in Deuteronomy, if you notice, the prophets are basically referring back to uh, the law of Moses. They're, they're essentially calling the people back to obedience to the Torah, to the law of God, to the law of Moses. Um, The content of the book spans the scope of God's redemptive history, ending in the eternal state. Just as Scripture opens with an account of the beginning of Genesis, so it closes with an account of the end of the present world when it's all summed up in Christ. And it was the last book written by an apostle. Uh, 
the historical reason there we'll look at. God has spoken in his son. It was in the Old Testament. It was through the prophets in these last days, our current time. He has spoken to us in his son and by extension, his apostles. Notice in John fourteen twenty six. But the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I said to you. Guess what also died out with John? An eyewitness. The, the apostolic gift, an eyewitness to the events of the life of Christ, all of that died out with John. That would fall under what I put as an historical reason of why that is to be uh, closed out. The theological reason, which I don't know how I skipped that, had to do with God's uh, confirming his... So it was Jude is the text there, the once for all delivered word to the saints. Uh, is, it was those texts saying that God has... has uh, identified that, that he has given a revelation that is for his church uh, that is sufficient. That is sufficient. I'll send that to you. I guess I was tinkering around with it and forgot to fix it. Uh, the last point there, God's people can rest assured. So what is the point of all that? Can rest assured they have the completion of God's word and do not need to be shaken by their claims. Now, related to the can, I'll just mention this. Are you all getting brain dead? And I'll, this other sections, I think, will go quicker. Uh, these are two books. This one is really, really a helpful, helpful book. It's not, it's not too long. It's called Truth Matters. If you were interested in reading more, um, I think this would be great to go through with a study, and particularly with students uh, who are going into college, because this is addressing all of those things, that, the attacks that are flying against Scripture that are... Uh, Bart Ehrman is sort of the spokesperson for the other side. I've mentioned this is the same book, essentially. It's just expanded. It's just as they give a little more detail. It's still not a very long book, you can see. Um, but they do expand some more detail. What I copy, that's what I got permission to copy, um, is in the back a quick question and answer, which is essentially a summary. This is how they approach each of their chapters, this claim, and then they talk about it. Um, really helpful, but if you were interested in looking at some of this stuff... Uh, at least in the way, the parts that they're talking about uh, in more detail. Let's look thirdly then at transmission. In, in relation to inspiration, it's not technically correct to say that our copies are inspired. It's not technically correct, right? Because what was, what was one of the things of inspiration is the product, the document. So that original document, do you remember what it was called or did I mention it? It's called, a, if you see this, it's called an autograph. So if you see that word, autograph. So it's called so the original so it's usually in the original autograph. So that's what so technically we don't have that original autograph, right? So technically when we say respired in the very narrow sense of that we're referring to those what Paul actually and the other writers actually wrote down that document when he wrote it and when he gave it to the churches or when it was sent to the churches. Um have what we call, and I, I mentioned this, I think I put it in a point later, somewhat derived inspiration. And by that, derived inspiration you hear is this, that they are inspired to the degree that they accurately represent the original. To that degree, they have the same authority as the inspired document. That makes sense, right? That's, um, so this brings us to the transmission of scriptures. Present copies of Scripture, okay, there it is, have derived inspiration. This means that although the original coffee autographs were inspired, the faithful transmission of these documents preserves the actual words and therefore authority, sufficiency, and trustworthiness of the original inspired documents. Um, 
through inspiration, providence, and translation, Scripture is the truthful and authoritative Word of God for people everywhere. Now, as uh, I think has been mentioned before, that preservation of the biblical text through transmission is ultimately a testimony of God's providence and care of his word. And so as a Christian, we can say all priority. We can just say right at the beginning that we hold that, look, God gave his word once for all delivered to the saints. He gave these incredible statements to Timothy and then to us, like all scriptures inspired by God and prophet. So God has given his word, the once for all delivered word for the saints and so forth. So, and he's given us information that carries us not only from the first century, but all the way through to the end of time, right? And God's people all the way through that time. And so just as a theological affirmation, we would say God would keep his word, right? He's not going to, he's not going to give his word to, for the good of his church, for the formation of his church, the preservation of his church, the holiness of his church, the hope of his church, the, the sufficiency of his people living in this world, and then let it just fade away, right? So just theologically, uh, we would attach that then to the providence of God, the providence of God. Uh, and so there you can look at those scriptures. We won't go through all of them. It just shows, look, God is in control. He's in control. So the fact that God would preserve his word, if God, like this is where our theology comes in just to, to put out the framework. If God is upholding all of creation by his, the word of his power, if there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground apart from his knowledge, right? If, if, if there's, the grass grows because of the power of God, Psalm, Psalm 14, is he not going to preserve and keep his word that's forever settled in heaven? Of course he is. Of course he is. So we as a Christian should just at the beginning have that kind of confidence. Of course God is going to keep his word. Now, so all we're doing when we look at this is just as a Christian uh, is just saying, let's see how God did that. Right? Every Christian hasn't through the ages had to have some understanding of transmission and canonization to know that's God's word. The spirit of God testifies into them. They might need to defend it. They might need to assure it against doubts. But the spirit of God testifies in our heart uh, that it is his word. Uh, and so in that he's providentially kept it. Um, let me give you right at the beginning. Um, well, I'll come back to this, actually. I have it for some reason here in my notes, but I'll come back to it. Um, and so we see also in the New Testament, uh, we see that the minutest detail of Scripture is held up as holding all the authority of God, right? So what are some examples of that? I don't know if I gave them later. I'll mention them now. Um, how about, I think it's Galatians 3. Uh, he didn't say to seeds, but he said to seed in reference to Christ. Do you remember that passage? He's making a doctrinal point based on whether it's a singular or a plural. Jesus says not one jot or tittle, which means that every jot and tittle they have uh, which are little marks in the Hebrew scriptures, are, are there and they have an authority uh, from God that can be rested and trusted in. And, and there are many other uh, examples of that. Jesus, you'll remember in the Gospels, made that point in Matthew 21, where he says, he did, he says I am the God of Isaac, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but a God of the living. Remember that point? Uh, he uses the present tense of a verb. If that were a different tense, there's lots of other tenses, uh, his point would have fallen to the ground. Uh, so the point is, is that you see 
Scripture itself and Jesus himself and the apostles themselves uh, affirming in detail, in the most minute detail, uh, the preservation of God's word, that the text that they had, the written text that all those Jews could go and check afterwards, was in fact reliable. Uh, let's just look at some of these points uh, here. God, God's people were careful to copy and hand down scripture from the time uh, his word was written down. Textual transmission was concerned from the beginning, of, beginning uh, from the beginning uh, uh, God to preserve his written word. I got to reword that. God preserved this word even through times of disobedience. We've mentioned that, 2 Kings 22.8. Uh, that's where Josiah, um, you remember they found the book of the law that was in the temple. Uh, the faithful word preserved even in time, was preserved even in times of disobedience. Uh, Isaiah 8.16 there is a reference to Isaiah when he gives his uh, prophecy. He tells his disciples to bind it up and to keep it because the times are evil. Uh, you see that example there of him you know, encouraging the preservation of the word. And God's prophets preserved God's word through writing. You see an example there of Jeremiah 6. So he actually writes a document given to him by God. Uh, the king doesn't like it, throws it in the fire. Jeremiah rewrites it. Remember that? And he actually expands it a, a little bit. There's a lot of interesting things to talk to you about that. But, um, so the story of God's preservation of his written word uh, tra- uh, traverses even through captivity, neglect, apostasy, and hostility from the nations. Antiochus Epiphanes, you're familiar with, the fourth, burned any copies of Scripture that he found among the Jews. Remember, that was in the intertestinal period. And so when the Jews apostatized, remember, they are going to sacrifice the bull, and it was that, all of that stuff. Um, so, but but uh, when, when all of that was happening leading up to that, uh, they were burning copies of Scripture. Listen to 1 Maccabees chapter 1. And when they had rent in pieces the books of the law which they found, they burnt them with fire. And wheresoever was found with any book of the, t- of the Testament, or if any consented to the law, the king's commandment was that he, should be put him, that he should put him to death. Thus they did by their authority unto the Israelites, everyone to as many as who were found in the cities. So both the apostate Jews and those who were on the side of uh, or part of Antiochus Epiphanes' army, they went through and they tried to destroy the copies of Scripture. And yet, God preserved it. He kept his word. Now, scribal groups formed after the people's return from the exile. But there, there wasn't a standardized process, as far as we knew, until the time of Ezra. And you can look at some of the reasons there, but, but the overall, each one of those reasons will emphasize, is why did they go into captivity and exile? Right? And, and particularly to God's word. Idolatry. So there was a huge change when they were back in. And now there was still the sin. You're, you get end up with Malachi, and he's addressing the same kind of, right, same sin. Um, but the point is, is there was from that time, there formed in Israel, there was a new attention from that time on to the, the word of God. And, and they didn't fall into the same kind of sins, actually, uh, as they had before. You're, that's a point that you've heard made before. Uh, the first uh, group known as suffering, there's the dates for them. They standardized a pure text of the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, at some unknown period, perhaps in the first century B.C., they hit upon the device of counting all the verses, words, and letters of each book in the Old Testament and appending these figures to the end of the book concerned 
book concerned. This would enable any checker to tell whether he had a perfect copy beforehand. Now, let me tell you. I don't know that that would have been a profession you or I would have wanted to go into. That was painstaking. It was painstaking. Let me give you just an example here. If you, chicken scratch. This was just to give you a visual, okay, of this. Obviously, we, we, uh, that's not going to make any sense. But you will see kind of this at the end. This is just one example of their checking devices, okay? If you'll notice, I wrote down little things, what those, are, what those things are meaning there. Okay, so this is saying here, this is Deuteronomy. So Deuteronomy is the last book of the Bible. This just gives you an example. It tells you, look at that little thing where it says midpoint of Deuteronomy. See that little, where it's little squared? That means that if you see that right there, if you counted all of the words exactly from the end to the beginning, they would meet, and this would be exactly in the middle. And so after they did it and they checked, they would count back. If it wasn't exactly this, you know what they did? They started over. This is the kind of thing that was going on. If you see right here, uh, they tell you at the bottom, what tells you, and this is what happened at the end of each book, actually. It tells you how many words and how many letters they would count them. If it didn't match up, it was a bad copy. Uh, and you can see some other things uh, in there, too. Sederim or lessons that they, you, it, it says it right there. That really would have kind of come about a little bit later. Yeah, but so anyway, this tells you how many verses uh, were in the book. So again, this is just to give you an idea of how excruciatingly detailed they were. And and understanding this is also going to make sense when you just briefly look at that list of some of the textual criticism and some of the kind of errors that were made. It's like, well, of course, you would expect that. Um, uh, This... This gives you an example of the Masoretic text. Now, again, that doesn't make sense to you. But let me just point this out. Again, this is only for visual purposes. These, these letters, um, what would they look like? I don't know. But you see those things, the big bold ones? Those are letters. Uh, those are consonants. When this was originally, like if you go way back, there weren't these spaces between, like those spaces are telling you different words. There were no spaces. They were just all written and they were written without the accents. They just knew it so much. They were familiar that they, they would, if you were reading it, they would just know. And remember, they needed to conserve space, the paper. They couldn't just go to the bookstore. They didn't have a binder like this and, you know, whatever. We'll toss it and start over. So that, that was all part of it. And so, uh, but the Masoretes, now, people became less and less familiar, the Jews, with the, the Hebrew language. And so one of the things they did is to preserve it they put in these, the, all those little points are vowels. Those are different vowel sounds. It looks weird now. You'd get used to it pretty quick, but uh, they're just little vowel sounds. It really has more to do, uh, not totally, but a lot to do with pronunciation and those kind of, those kind of things. Now, what also would happen, so then that when they would see some of these vowels, they would never touch the consonantal text. So if they ever thought there was a mistake, or there was something, you see over here, um, they would write over on the side, over here, what these little notes are. These are little notes about, they'd say it's, uh, they had a, a, a term, I think I may have put in there, what is written and what is read. So they'd say, here's what's read, 
and they'd have a little note to go off to the side and say, uh, or excuse me, they'd say, this is what was written, and they'd have a little note off to the side to say, this is what should be read. And they'd say, this is what we think it should be. This is the error that we think the scribes would have these little notations all the way through. But they would never touch the text, the continental text itself. They'd leave it alone. That was sacrosanct. They didn't touch that. And so they just had these little notation systems uh, that they put in. It just shows you the reverence that they had for it and the painstaking detail uh, that they put to it. Uh, of what some of those notes would mean. And uh, anyway, so you could look. That's just, again, to give you a visual. Uh, this is something similar in the Greek New Testament. This is the Gospel of John. That means according to John up at the top. And so this just gives you, uh, in, a, in a critical edition of the New Testament, these are all notes. So this is all manuscript information right down there. So I highlighted just a couple of things so you could see uh, what it is. We might... Uh, we might come back to that. But the point of that is uh, just to give a visual, just so you can see this is the kind of painstaking. So when you read uh, an English translation, this is what's behind it. This is the kind of painstaking detail that is behind it. And, and uh, that's actually very encouraging. And hopefully you'll read your Bibles and look at some of those marginal notes. So sometimes you'll see things not in the oldest manuscript, not in the earliest manuscript. This was, you know, whatever, whatever. It's, it's textual criticism is what they're... But here's the amazing thing. I'll just say this is uh, up front. The amazing thing is this, is that when you see those notes, or sometimes you'll see the brackets in there, uh, uh, that actually is very encouraging. Can, do you see why? When, when there's no, because this is essentially what that's saying, is we know with such absolute accuracy and detail what the original text was that we can identify the most minute detail of Scripture, like when it says, when it gives you ultimate readings or what it couldn't be. It means of all of the Scriptures, it's known that detail. We can tell you, uh, it may have been this word. Uh, so that actually should be something that's very, very encouraging to you. You can look at that information. Let me give you one interesting uh, story here. Um, just to, to show you how all this works. And, and to show you why we're not intimidated by this stuff that liberals, when they come in in these attacks, this is just one of the many reasons uh, why we shouldn't be. Um, I, I love this one. And in, in, in talking to people, this is always a, a good thing to, to talk about, helpful sometimes. Before 1947, the oldest manuscript extant, you know what that means? To say that a physical copy that you could have, it's extant. Uh, the oldest manuscript we had was from almost, it was like in the 900s A.D. I don't know if that's information is in there. It was, was in A.D. So, what was the line of thought? <laughs> Seriously? Like, you know, the history of Israel, the, the deserts of Moab, you know, Moses. Uh, this, this thing is riddled with errors, right? You can't trust this. I mean, this is really? kept in, It was kept in a monastery. Uh, of course, if our theology drives us, and if we know God and as a Christian, you know this is God's word. You had it affirmed in your, by the Spirit of God. Uh, man, how are you going to get a hold of any evidence, right? We're not there. We don't have it. We're not archaeologists and all this other stuff. There's no way. Well, here's just one interesting thing. Uh, so what happened in 1947? Do you know it was discovered? The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. Now, there's a lot of question about the Dead Sea Scrolls, whether those were like throwaway scrolls and they just kept them or whether those were actual good copies. But that, regardless of that, one of the most complete scrolls uh, was actually the book of Isaiah. 
Uh, it was one of the most kept intact uh, scrolls of, of all of them. And when you compare Isaiah to what was the Masoretic text uh, that we just, I just mentioned, and you'll see in the notes there when they came around, 500 to 1,000 AD. Uh, when you see and you compare that to the Masoretic text, it's essentially exactly the same text. So when we talk about errors, like sometimes you'll hear them throw these numbers around, and that's in that book. They, may, they bring this out too. But sometimes you'll hear them throw, well, there's a like, you know, you know, if you counted up the errors, like in there, is I'm just going to toss this out. But there's like, you know, 532 er- textual errors. How can you believe it? You know what those errors are? Spelling. A vowel point out of the way. Uh, maybe the formation of a word. It's, it's the punctuation. It, it's those kind of errors. It has nothing to do with the meaning of the text. But essentially, it's, it's like, so when you just hear a number like that, it sounds like, whoa. When you start examining that, you realize that's a foolish argument. That doesn't, uh, it doesn't, it doesn't at all. So, as a matter of fact, I do think I have a quote in there. Um, I do think I have something in there. Okay, yeah, actually, here's one right under the New Testament. The proportion of words virtually accepted on all hands as raised above doubt is very great, no less than seven-eighths of the whole. The remaining one-eighth formed in great part by changes of order... Comparative trivialities constitute the whole area of criticism, like I just mentioned. Spelling, punctuation, forming, like sometimes a different word. Uh, um, followed, followed in this edition or sound, this area may be very greatly reduced. We find that setting aside differences in ortho, orthography, that's spelling, the words, in our opinion, still subject to doubt, make up about one-sixtieth of the New Testament. In this second estimate, the proportion of comparatively trivial vari- variations is beyond measure larger than in the former, so that the amount of what can in, in any sense be called substantially a variation is but a small fraction of the whole residuary variation and can hardly form more than one one-thousandth part of the entire text. And it's been well noted, in other words, it's saying they're really quite small, and, and, and the fact when you hear all of those numbers, here's another fact. We have, uh, there were over 5,700 manuscripts. Now we have over 25,000. So part of that too is some manuscripts, they come from different areas. They're not all of the same quality. Some are better quality, some are less. Well, every one of those gets recorded as a discrepancy, but they're not all, uh, but it's because of just simply the, the vast number of them. So if you have 25,000, well, within 25,000, you're naturally going to have uh, a higher number, but they're all going to fit what he's saying is into these relatively minor kind of things, and that that is the whole point of textual criticism is to compare them and to know the better text and so forth. And so you can uh, look at that. Does that make sense? Am, am I losing? Does that make sense what I just said? Does it? Okay, good, good. Um, I, do I have any of this information here about the number of... Because uh, uh, I have it in my notes about... Uh, how long the distance between when it was written and uh, a book was written and then a manuscript that we have. Well, here, let me just give you an example. Uh, by comparison, uh, well, let me put it this way. In relation to the New Testament, the manuscript evidence is described by one New Testament scholar as embarrassing. There are approximately 5,700 extant manuscripts of the New Testament, either in complete forms or in portions that date back to the 2nd century A.D. The earliest one is a little portion of John that was just found in a riverbank in, in Egypt, actually. Have you heard that? Uh, it was just a little portion of the Gospel of John. It was in what is uh, like 140, I want to say. I hope I'm not wrong. It was like 140 is when it's dated back to. 
it's this little, it's over in this little small provincial village. It's a part of the Gospel of John, and it's found. So that means that even in that early date, in this little village out that was a long way from Palestine, there were copies of the scriptures that were going around among Christians as the gospel was going out. I mean, that's, that's, that's amazing. But here's an amazing uh, part of that. Some more. The earliest fragment, oh, here it is. The earliest fragment of the Gospel of John dates back to the first half of the second century, around 25 to 50 years from the death of the apostle. What is just as significant as the age is that it was from, a, okay, a small town along the Nile. Um, and this debunked earlier liberal scholars who said that the Gospel of John was not written until around 160 AD. So, <laughs> we can't get into this, but it's really wonderful that it take like, talk about some of the archaeology of the Old Testament because there was just a whole line of things that liberal scholars, that was ridiculous. Those people never existed. There's no way that they could have had this kind of language and the formation of language by the time the new Bible claims. And all of those things are debunked. All, but that's again why we can't, I mean, we shouldn't have our faith shaken. It doesn't rest, like as a Christian, we don't rest that on evidence. Evidence strengthens, it gives apologetic value, all of that. But it's like, even if we don't have, even if there's things that we don't yet have found, it's like, but this is God's word. I don't, I don't need that discovery. It's kind of like when they found the shroud of Jesus. Well, now you do you believe? Well, first of all, that whole thing was bogus. But second of all, like, no, because my faith doesn't rest in a shroud that you find off. Like, somehow I can't believe and nobody can believe until you find something in a tomb. That's a ridiculous thought from a Christian perspective. Um, by comparison... What's really important there is that you see the scriptures being copied so close to the death of the apostle. Here's a comparison. By the comparison, the most revered writings of pagan authors, such as Homer's Iliad, Caesar's Gallic Wars, Titus uh, Livy's History of Rome, were the earliest manuscript dates. You ready? 800 to 900 years from the original composition. Compare that. For a Muslim, actually, that's very important because the, the... the Quran was not written until hundreds of years after, supposedly. And so for them to realize the New Testament was written. So think of this. The New Testament was written and circulating while there were eyewitnesses and people around who saw all this stuff confirming the events. I mean, that is, that's really a, that's a pretty huge reality. So this idea that somehow you can compare it's not reliable and they, and they compare it to these other books, it's like, well, that's ridiculous. It's just absolutely a ridiculous uh, claim. Uh, it, it, you, you, that we don't need to be intimidated by. Hysterical text boasts 200 copies, and there are approximately 1,400 years after the original composition. Compare this to the nearly 5,700 manuscripts of the New Testament dating back to within a generation of the original writing. There's no comparison. There's no comparison. Uh, and from a, just a purely historical point of view, it's... Like that one writer said, it's ridiculous. I mean, there's, there's nothing that even comes within the same ballpark of witnesses and testimony to a written document historically. Um, not, even, not even close. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. I think I have some of that in the notes there. Last part. Do y'all want to, can we take 10 minutes and I'll do it in 10 minutes translation? Are you good? Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry. Look at transmission. Okay, page 30. Mm-hmm. Transmission. So if you look at number of witness, time factor, number of witnesses, process of comparing text with other texts, textual critics, identify common errors. Um, do you see that, all of that? Number four, textual critics, identify common errors. Okay, so 
if you had in your handouts, I don't have it, um, this, where are your handouts? This is just for you to look at. I would really encourage you to look at this. Um, I wish, I kind of always think we'll have time to do it, but it's just one page. It says textual critical criteria. So you'll see unintentional errors, intentional errors. You'll see the kind of mistakes that they, that they would make. Um, and then here's uh, external and internal. So this is basically when you look at that information that was at the bottom, this is some of the things that they're, these are the kind of things that they're going through. How do you know which reading to go for? So there's a, there's, it's an art, there's a science to it, and there's a certain art. So, for example, you ask yourself when you come to some variant readings, would, would the author, would a scribe have been more likely, if they're going to make a change, they more likely make a change to clarify it, not to make it more obscure or harder. So you can see if something's smoothed out, and some you go, well, this is probably, this is a scribal change who, who's made it for this way. Sometimes you see harmonization. These are uh, one set of that criteria. Sometimes you see errors of the eye or the sound, because a lot of times what it was, the book was read, a copy, and then the scribes were writing. Well, when you can compare the scribes that were in there, you can see, see mistakes that were because of the sound of words and they're not and again they're not all making the same mistake at the same time right and so that helps you to compare those manuscripts and goes oh here's the problem okay and then you apply these these criteria and you can say which would be applied to any text this isn't some bible world kind of thing it would it's how you do textual criticism and so it's and so when you understand that the mere massive number of uh, witnesses that we have uh in, uh, gives an incredible amount of accuracy uh, that we can that we have translation. So there's obviously a lot to say about that. I would suggest looking through those. You might find them very very interesting. And I, there is a really great book that uh, is really written. Uh, you know, it's not you know all the technical stuff that I, I can suggest, and I'll put it in the reading list. That would be really really in- interesting and helpful. Translation. Here's translation. Uh, there are some definitions. Two key points. Let's just go there. Translation should most accurately reflect the original language, uh, and translation reflects our view of inspiration. Now, here's two basic philosophies of translation. So when you go into the Bible store and you see the wall of Bibles, right? (gasps) (laughs) Which Bible do I get? I have no idea. Right, you know, you still, sometimes people pick it just because it's the prettiest. Uh, it was always so painful sometimes to go into Morningstar, and I'm, I'm, you probably had the same experience. And you hear them talking, giving advice, and you're just like, oh "God, give me wisdom! God, give me!" Because <laughs> it's like it's terrible sometimes, and, and the Lord has given a, an opportunity to speak to that, but sometimes not, and it just you know it just kills you. It's like. But anyway, uh, it's, there's, two, there's a way to really clarify all of that. It's really not as confusing as it seems. It does, on the surface, seem confusing, but it's really quite simple. And here's the thing. There's two distinct translation philosophies. You may have heard of these, formal equivalence and dynamic equivalence. Have you all heard of those terms? Formal, formal and dynamical, word for word or thought for thought. You have, right? Okay. How do you understand the difference? Does anybody want to take a shot at that? Well, word for word is actually trying to match up in the target language exactly what is being said in the, or the word that's being used in the source language. Mm-hmm. And um, 
Okay, so those are the basic points. So now the funny thing is, is through most of the history of the church, formal equivalence is was was it's what translation is. And translation is you are trying to represent what was actually written. Um, If you're going country and you're having to give a speech, you don't want your translator trying to figure out what you're saying and then giving his own thing. You you say, I want you to say what I said, right? You're assuming that what I said is there. So if I have ambiguity in what I said, that might that's intentional maybe. Or if I use a certain word, it's I'm doing that on purpose. And so the translator should carry that over. Um, but the important thing that uh, so that's formal equivalence. You can read some of those things. Uh, number C wants to make the text of Scripture transparent to the reader through translation. That word transparent is important. Dynamic. So you like most of us aren't going to study the original languages, and so when we look at this. We don't know what's behind it, right? So if you have your Bible, and then you say, well, uh, you know, guess what? Uh, this is what John really... You know, who's going to know what that means, right? We're not going to know what that means. And so that's the idea of transparency. This should be so accurate that it, it, it gives us a clear window into what is being said there. It's like our looking glasses, like, you know, if you had a little spy kit, and you could put on the special glasses, and you could see... That's what the translation should be. It should be like those special glasses so that we could see what was actually uh, there. Dynamic equivalence is thought for thought. And the, the issue there is, and you can look at uh, some of the reasonings they have, is that it introduces the, the element of interpretation. Interpretation. It tries to capture the sense of the passage. Get this, that is to produce the same effect on the reader today that the original reader would have had. Well, how do you know? And who are you to decide that is, is the issue. That's, that's not your realm. That's not translation. That's where Bible study comes in. That's called interpretation. Uh, they're, they're adding uh, a subjective element uh, and I'm, uh, to it. And I give just a few examples there at the end. And here's some other things behind the dynamic equivalence. And these are just common. Uh, they assume in verse C a low reading level and ability on the part of the reader to see, they basically assume a low, they, they use low-level vocabulary and syntax and thoughts. So they're basically kind of assuming everybody's kind of dumb and illiterate. I mean, they wouldn't put it so crassly, but that's, a, that's essentially what they do. So if you look at one of those charts I gave you, it'll show you the reading level of the different ones. And so if you get to NIV and others, it's like sixth grade reading level, seventh grade reading level, not even high school grade reading level. So that's a pretty huge assumption uh, 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 on, on their part. Uh, they assume that Scripture is by its nature overly complex and too far removed for the reader to understand. So basically what they're saying is God didn't effectively communicate in the words he chose, so we need to fix it up and bring it in you know, to our common people. That, that's a low view of inspiration, right? A high view of inspiration says these are God's words. God knows what he's saying. He knows why he chose that word. Uh, we need to represent that. A pride comes in and says, uh, well, we're just too far removed, so we got to kind of help God along. It's like, no, that's God's word. That's, God, that's not translation. That's, that you've stepped outside of bounds at that point. Um, let's do this. So you can read through those. I would suggest to, to read through those. Let's look at some of those examples. Examples of changes on number four. Examples of changes in dynamic equivalent translations. Here's, here's how this works. This is kind of the nitty-gritty of where this makes a difference. And this, as you can imagine, could be multiplied 
you know, over many, many, many more, more times. This is just to give you an idea of the kind of things that are made. So 1 John 2, 5. In him, the love of God has been perfected. Now, when you come to a passage like that, it's ambiguous. Why is it ambiguous? Well, here it is. What does that mean? Does that mean the love that God has for the believer? Is that what he's talking about? Or is it talking about the believer's love for God? Which one has been perfected and how has it been perfected? Um, the NIV says God's love. The, R, the NLT says love for God. So those are two different, those are two different translations. Those are with two different meanings. In an attempt to settle the issue, they've given two different meanings. And they have removed from the reader the joy of study, prayer, meditation, and discovery. So what do you, if you have a Bible study, you have two people with two of those things of a dynamic equivalence. Who's right? Which Bible is right? I don't know. Right? You're totally at the mercy. Now it's just, it, it's confusion. Uh, who, who's right? Um, and here's the inver- verse, that number v, letter V there, number five. Here's the important thing. God put the ambiguity there. God did that. God did that. He does not need our correction or clarification. Here's another example. Psalm 1-6. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. ESV. That would be a formal equivalence. NIV. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. You have a different meaning and a different word. Uh, TEV. Uh, the English version. Uh, the righteous are guided and protected by the Lord. This is all the same verse. You have, you have three totally different meanings here. Um, Look at this, some notes there. The translators have made an interpretive decision. They've obscured the original term, and they've robbed, again, the reader of searching out and searching out the context and coming to inclusion. Uh, they cut the reader off from their ability to cross-reference and employ the analogy of faith. What if all of a sudden now you start doing word searches for watches and guards? Well, guess what? That's not the word that's there. And each term has a certain lexical range. And often when they make these interpretive decisions, because they're not guided by the term... The word used, they're guided by the thought, so they give a translation that they put off as a translation that is of a word that isn't even there, that isn't even the word used. And it's like, how do you do a Bible study uh, from that? The original Hebrew reader, as well as the English reader, would, would probably wonder at first glance what sense is meant by no. The Hebrew sense uh, far more supports no with affection. The, the, that term there means it supports no with affection. But the nuances of watch over and protect make decisions and cut the reader off from the original. So now they, you have a whole other mind, you have a whole other understanding of that passage. So if he uses no, but they go, oh, that's too confusing. And so now they come over here. Well, the original term would have meant no with affection. But the tra- here's the thing. If you're translating, you translate no. You let the reader figure that out. You let them understand that and do the work. As a translator, you don't have that right to do that, and that's not your job. And you've just, you have just, in that sense, thinking that you're clarifying Scripture, but in fact, you're obscuring it from them. Here's one more verse. Ephesians 6.3, the NIV, that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. The New American Standard, which is a literal so that it may go well with you and, and may live long, you may live long uh, on the earth. The word enjoy is not in the original text. Again, that's, a, that's an interpretation they've made. That's a sense that they've given it that's not there. The insertion of this term opens up opportunities, listen, for reflection and comparison with other texts that are not legitimate. Now, all of a sudden, you're going to start cross-referencing, looking up other words, or, or sit there and reflect on this verse, which is not something that God had there. 
you see, they totally, they've totally messed that up. Uh, it's misleading, and it says something the text does not. Um, many of these things can be corrected from the pulpit, but if you're constantly having, to con- uh, constantly having to correct the translation of the people, then eventually they will lose confidence in the Scriptures. And you lose confidence in the Scriptures, as I mentioned before. If you have two different Bibles there, and you have dynamic equivalents, well, you could have two, three, maybe four different translations of a text, and you're like, well, what is that? Which Bible is it? Well, my Bible says something different. Uh, so those are very important. John, last example there, John 6, 27, literal translations. A New American Standard, that's a, that's a formal equivalence. For on him the Father, even God, has set a seal. New King James is also formal. Because God the Father has set his seal on him. So you see, the meaning is the same of those verses. Both of those are legitimate, literal translations. But they both have kept the, the meanings of representation of the word. That's the important thing. And so on uh, ESV. For on him, God the Father has set a seal. So there's legitimate ways. You have some freedom in the syntax uh, you can use. But now listen to how a thought for thought does it. And see the difference. See how you have three formal equivalents essentially saying the same thing. You're going to come to the same point on each of those. But now listen to thought for thought. On him, the God the Father has placed his seal of approval. He didn't say that. It's not what it says. Uh, the R.E.B. for on him, the Father has set the seal of his authority. Well, is it approval or is it authority? Which is it? Uh, if you read a, a dynamic equivalent, you don't know. Here's the message. And he, he and what he does are guaranteed by God the Father to the last. Three different, three different translations of those who are, who are purporting to be translations but in fact what they're doing is they're interpreting the text for you so when you hear it's sometimes said that you know why we don't prefer the niv and we don't use some of this these are the reasons why Uh, it's not wrong to have one of those translations but it is important to be aware of what you have and it is to be aware important to have a literal translation that you can compare things with and our suggestion would be is if you're going to study don't study from a dynamic equivalent don't study from the niv Uh, and frankly the later versions of the NIV got more and more that way. The newer, the first ones weren't as bad, as bad as they were, but they got worse. Um, you can read those quotes. So translations. Owner have access to a variety of translations. Be sure to have a word-for-word translation. Compare translation with translation, unless you want to go learn the originals. And know the types of translation you're comparing. And take time to read the marginal notes. Take time to read those. And do you know that in your Bible, when you have an italicized word, why is that word italicized? Do you know? It's added. It's the sense. Now, that's not bad. First of all, they're telling you what they're doing, so that's not deceptive. They're saying this isn't there. But it's because of the way the Greek language works or the Hebrew language. There's words that are implied. So sometimes in the Hebrew, they might have a subject over here or a verb that carries through on all these things. That's just how it's written. So the Hebrew or the Greek, they would know that. In English, we're, we're not, and so they supply it. And so they're saying this isn't here, but this is to help you read and to give you the sense uh, because it would be more confusing uh, to not put that there. So those are totally legitimate. What were you going to say? Yeah. Yeah, those are totally fine uh, to do that. It might be fun sometimes. I do this. if I'm, uh, you know, uh, I'll just take those words out and read it without it. Um, but anyway, and own a good study Bible that will provide helpful information on the text and alternate readings. Y'all are troopers. That was a lot. That's too much to cover probably in uh, one, one shot. Do y'all feel like it's information overload? 
hopefully there's some things that are helpful. Huh? Good, good. I hope so. I hope so. Uh, and I'll put a list, like I said, of books uh, to get if y'all were interested. Does anybody even have the slightest inclination to read one of these books that I'll put on there? Would you? They're good resources. Truth Matters, I would really suggest that one. Really, really good. I would love to, actually. I would really love to uh, do that. I was thinking that when I read it, uh, both of those. Um, because those are exactly the kind of things that are argued against. And I would even suggest, while this is great, uh, with really dealing a lot of times with the logic of what they're, what they're saying, arguing, but it, to pick up a book, and there are some that I'll suggest, on textual transmission, those things, so that you have that in your mind or on the canon, uh, that are very helpful with the information uh, and um, that, that's um, also as important uh, to know. And, it, you know, another, just a real quick blurb here. Uh, just as far as information, uh, another helpful work, and probably everybody here has it, is uh, New Evidence That Demands a Verdict, a verdict by Hank Hanegraaff. And we're not totally into Hank Hanegraaff. Or, no, Josh McDowell, I think, has that. Have you all heard of that book? He basically just compiles all of the historical evidence for some of these different things, like canon, inspiration, uh, some of that I think was even pulled from it. I don't remember, but uh, it's just a, it's like an encyclopedia of it. I mean, you can go and read it, and you can just you know have it all right there, uh, information that was compiled, and uh, it's helpful. I'll bring all uh, I'll I'll write it. it. Well, it's there, but I'll just do it next time. Well, let me pray for us. Here's the end result. Uh, we can trust and think about what we have in our hand. When you read about it, this is the same words, the same truth that Abraham was, uh, well, not him, he didn't have it, but the, the Moses <laughs> at that time, and then Joshua, the people of God, all throughout the history, when we open our Bibles, this was the same words. It was the same Bible. God was preserving it for us. It was saving them, giving them wisdom, courage, hope in the midst of all of the things. They were dying for this word. They were giving up their lives for this word. As we mentioned John Bunyan at the spirituality word. He was feeding on this word when he was in prison and having to be separated from his blind daughter and so on and so forth. Uh, God has kept and preserved his word. It's really um, much uh, that should... Uh, really bring our hearts to a place of worship. And in that, hear God speak. Did y'all read that article? Morning, I heard God speak. Wasn't that great? What a good perspective that helps us to have when we go. It's just as if God had spoken that word audible. That's the intimacy that we have with the word uh, of God. Let me close this. Father, thank you for this, your word, and preserving it. And really help us, even um, as wonderful and, and I think, uh, exciting and as all that information is, uh, the main point is uh, what a marvel it is to study and look at what you've done uh, in keeping your word and preserving it. And how amazing that we can sit here with it in our hand, that despite the, the, the persecution of your people, despite the attempts of the evil one through his evil workers in this world to destroy your word, to burn it and to get rid of it and to silence it, uh, yet it stands. And yet it is powerful. And it is by your own providence that the Bible is one of the most printed books, is the number one bestseller for years and years and years and years and years. Uh, that's your faithfulness. Uh, that's you preserving your word and getting it out there. And uh, so help us to, 
to be faithful students of it. Help us to be appreciators and lovers of your word, to meditate, to think, to read, to pray it back, to share, uh, to study, and to learn uh, all that we can from your word. And may it take hold of our hearts and our minds and our thinking and renew them and give us uh, every good gift that you have designed for your word to give to your people uh, through the spirit of God. Uh, And may we know it. We thank you and may we, uh, through that word, uh, just exalt Christ uh, and be conformed to his image uh, and exalt him in this world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for staying a little later. Potty? Oh, thanks. You can delete that last part. All right. Well, y'all did great.